Morning. Morning, Mercy House. If you have uh, elementary age kids, we're going to ask and invite that they go down this way, down to Sunday school. I use this one. Carla's more my height than Mitch Mitchell, so I'm going to use her stand. It's a lot of kiddos. All right. Good morning, Mercy House. How are we? Real good, huh? First first Sunday of the new year. Yeah, it is. Got a hard. Hard crowd this morning. All right. Well, uh, hopefully you are still running strong with your, your New Year's resolution. Everybody's still doing what they set out to do. No? Any, anyone quit already? Yeah, some of you. Yeah, I don't think I have a New Year's resolution. Um, yeah, I don't really have one. So my, my uh, wife got me facial moisturizer, so I've been using that the last few days. So that's the new thing for 2019 for, for Thomas Moore. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm really glad that you're here this morning. I, I want to welcome you. If you don't recognize me, I'm on staff here at Mercy House, and I'm going to keep charging us through this winter sermon series called Jesus University, Jesus University. And we're taking a four-week dive into uh, what Jesus teaches his disciples about what it means to be a disciple. And we're looking at Luke 19 and 10 during this time because really it, it's a densely packed section of Jesus' teaching, uh, but it's also a significant turning point for the disciples themselves as they're following Jesus. So we saw last week kind of this very catalytic moment where Jesus mobilizes and sends out his disciples to preach the gospel um, and to perform some supernatural healing on the people around them. And so they're going from this classroom setting to like the operating room, so to speak, in literally like months, within a year of having met Jesus. Because um, if you remember, as you're reading through Luke, uh, Jesus starts his ministry in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, Jesus is kind of saying, look, I'm going to start my ministry. In chapter 5, um, he, he's calling the first disciples to himself. In chapter 6, he's naming the apostles. And then here in chapter 9, he's, he's sending them out. So that's like very, very fast turnaround. Jesus University, right, if we're looking at what it looks like to be a disciple, and for them, it's, it's like an accelerated degree, at, at, the very, at the very least. And last week, we saw that being a disciple means entering this fast track into ministry. And it's not because you need to do work in order to be saved, but this reality that Jesus saves us to then go and do good work, to bring the gospel of salvation and healing to other people. And so there's an urgency in this, as we saw. There, there's a joy in carrying it out as the disciples get to experience it. And Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples um, that this is not going to be a spectator sport by any means. It's not a come watch on Sunday, check off my reading plan throughout the week, um, kind of isolated relationship with Jesus. It, it's a full life encompassing, hands getting dirty, opposition ridden, tear wrought, faith requiring mission that Jesus invites his people to. It's what we're being mobilized for. So that's what we talked about last week. And, and that if we're not experiencing these things as disciples of Jesus, it, it might be because we just don't quite know what it means to be a disciple or, or maybe what it entails or maybe what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus, which is okay. That's why we're here this morning. And so my hope for the sermon series is that the call of discipleship, what, what it means to be a disciple, would just be very clearly laid out, um, clear as day, no fine print to sift through. And as that call is laid out clearly for us, the, the application to our lives and the ways that we are to respond are also very clear for us. 
So let me pray for us again, and then we're going to dive right into the text. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can learn about who you are in it, God. We pray that you would further reveal yourself to us, um, that, that as we're looking at this moment where the disciples get to encounter you and, and, and start understanding who you are, um, that, that you would be doing the same work in our hearts as well. We love you, God. We pray that you would guide this time, guide my words, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the section of text right before the one that we're going to be looking at this morning is where Jesus, he basically instigates this impossible situation for his disciples. So he challenges them in their limits of hospitality and of faith uh, to have compassion in a very inconvenient uh, situation to have compassion in and and to trust in Jesus to do something that would literally be impossible. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. And when the disciples hint uh, that, that the day is drawing to an end and all these people who have come out to see Jesus, like, they're like, hey, they need to eat. They need some place to go. Um, they should maybe go and take care of that themselves. Jesus casually suggests that maybe they, the disciples, should be feeding this crowd of thousands of people. Remember, right, this isn't a small group. This is not like, okay, let's feed all y'all after lunch today or after the service today. We're talking about a Mullen Center packed to the brim, right? We talked last week, the capacity for the Mullen Center is 9,672, I think it was. Uh, but we're talking about 5,000 men. So if you're including women and children, you're looking at closer to 15,000 people. So a Mullen Center jam-packed with people, and Jesus is like, let's feed them. How about you guys go feed them, right? He's instigating this very supernatural experience and situation for them. But it's through their obedience, their following of Jesus's commands. Um, Jesus demonstrates through their obedience his supernatural divine power, and, and he feeds the thousands until they're full. Not just little snacks here and there, but until they're full and there's leftovers to spare. So that's where we left off. That just happened. And when we dive into the text this morning in Luke chapter 9, 18 through 20, open up your Bibles, boot them up. We're going to be in a lot of different places throughout Scripture today, so you're going to be hopping around. I encourage you to do your best to try to keep up in your personal Bibles, but they will be on the screen behind me here, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And I think this scene might actually be a little bit funnier than we give it credit to being. Um, So it says that Jesus is praying alone. He's by himself. He's praying alone. And that his disciples were with him, right? So which would imply that they probably interrupted him, uh, but what's funny to me is that the conversation starts with Jesus talking to them. So they're not coming in and being like, excuse me, Jesus, they see Jesus praying, and they kind of like just linger around and hover until Jesus opens his eyes and sees his disciples there, and then we have this interaction starting. Um, so situationally, it's a little awkward, uh, but Jesus is full of grace. He's a really sweet guy, and so when he sees them, he's not like, hey, I need some space. Get out of here. He addresses them. He takes the opportunity to engage them um, in one of what would be their most pivotal conversations to date. He asks them, who do the crowds, the the ones that we just fed, so the thousands of people, who do they say that that I am? And this isn't because Jesus doesn't know, right? He's not looking for some juicy gossip or the latest rumor mill surrounding his ministry. Uh, This is a very intentional question that's going to be used uh, to see where his disciples are at, and also as a litmus test to see how his ministry as a whole is going. Do, Do the disciples understand 
who I am, what, what I'm here to do? And the disciples respond that some of the people uh, who are following and believe that he's John the Baptist and that others believe that he's Elijah or, or one of the prophets. Now, here's something that we can draw right away from the answers of the crowd and, and who they think Jesus to be. So first off, John's ministry, John the Baptist, um, his, his ministry and his work is happening at the same time as Jesus's. So John the Baptist is over there, Jesus is over here. So the, the first response when people think that uh, who they're following is John the Baptist is completely wrong. It shows that they have no idea who Jesus is because they think that he is someone who is literally over there. Right? So these are people um, whose conception of Jesus is based mostly in, in the murmurings of the crowd around them, some rumors that they've heard secondhand. Right? They're a part of this big crowd. They're like, hey, who's that? They're like, I think it's John the Baptist. All right, that's John the Baptist. So you've got a pretty large group of people who think that this Jesus is someone who he just literally is not. And, and at this point, um, it, it, it's not crazy. Right? John is very well known. Um, he's well known because he's, he's, a, he's a pretty crazy, fiery dude. Um, he's wearing clothes made out of camel's hair. He, he's eating crickets and honey. Um, he's in the, literally, he's in the woods yelling at people to repent of their sins, right? Um, this isn't like a cultural thing. It's not like it would have made more sense back then. It would be like if we saw that today. It would be a little bit crazy, right? Now, um, so when you look at it, if you, if you turn your Bibles to chapter 3, it's going to be behind me. This is a, a piece of, of, of John's ministry, and he's hardly polite about what he's talking about. Verse 7 he said, therefore, this is John the Baptist, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. So people were coming out and saying, yes, we'd like to repent. We, we want to be baptized by you, John. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's a fiery dude. He's a fiery preacher. And so in a world without Instagram, without Facebook, Twitter, BuzzFeed, whatever, John the Baptist is the talk of the region. Everyone would have heard about him. And, and so as Jesus is gathering huge groups of people around him, it kind of makes sense that they would assume that maybe Jesus, this person that's gathering all these people, um, is this crazy, fiery preacher that's got everybody excited. But he wasn't, right? He wasn't John the Baptist. He didn't dress like John the Baptist. He didn't eat like John the Baptist. Even his tone is not like John the Baptist. And what this shows us is that there are people in this crowd following Jesus who literally have no idea who Jesus is other than what some incorrect rumors they've heard about him say that he is. And what about people who think that he's Elijah, right? So the reference here um, is to the prophecy written in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, we see a promise from God of a messenger that would be sent right before the day of the Lord, where God would make everything right again. And so we see this literally in the last verses of Malachi, right before about 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and when God speaks again in the New Testament. And we, 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 we hear this, uh, and, and, and the people would have known this, right? The people would have thought, who thought Jesus was Elijah, would have just done their homework. This isn't a crazy guess. It would have been argued that these are some people who, who might be pretty faithful, who have carried along this long tradition um, of expecting of expectation and waiting for this Elijah, uh, this prophet who would just bring about the start to the beginning of God's redemption of Israel. 
So it's a pretty good guess, but they were wrong as well. He's not Elijah. We know this because earlier in Luke, um, it says, we see in chapter 7, verse 24, um, Jesus says that Elijah, the prophesied precursor to the great and awesome day of the Lord, this is Malachi 4, 5, has already come. Um, you can read it in verse 24. It says, when John's messenger, and this is John the Baptist, had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus confirms by quoting Malachi chapter 3 that yes, this is the person that you've been waiting for to usher in the day of the Lord. And, and he's come, and his name is John the Baptist, not me. So those in the crowd who thought Jesus was Elijah, though it would be a very educated guess, um, they're wrong about Jesus. They also don't know who Jesus is. So those, uh, if, if he's not the big fiery uh, preacher, prophet, meant to usher in the day of the Lord, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? In verse 20, we see, then he, this is Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And the first lesson we're seeing this morning for being a disciple of Jesus is that you need to know who it is you're following. You need to know who it is you're following. And while that may seem very straightforward, this actually is probably one of the major barriers to people entering into true discipleship is that their understanding of Jesus is not actually true to who Jesus actually is. So in addition uh, to this vital component of discipleship being that you need to know who you're following, it's crucial to understand that you can be wrong in your conception of Jesus. You can be wrong in your conception of Jesus. And we see this here in three ways. Um, we, we see three ways that, that people can see who Jesus is. So the first one is that those who think that Jesus is John the Baptist are following the crowds and believing uh, in secondhand rumors. They're not verifying the facts. They're, they're kind of just along for the ride with everyone around them. They're seeing free food, awesome. Free healing, awesome. Let's go. I'm, uh, I'll be a part of this right now. And those uh, of us today who might be in this boat are, are going to be people who might have a cultural understanding of who Jesus is. They might even celebrate Christmas um, and honor Jesus and uh, like we would any other famous person that gets a holiday. And, and I think that these people, with these people, there's really nothing exactly wrong with that picture, that conception of Jesus to them, right? People who think that Jesus is John the Baptist back then, they weren't like, I'm wrong, but I also think that that's John the Baptist. No, they do believe that that's John the Baptist. They're just completely wrong in that. Um, and so I think that's, that's what we see here uh, we can see here today is that there are some people who are following Jesus casually, understanding who he is, can, can benefit from him in some ways, maybe his church community in some ways, um, but really have no idea who Jesus is. And the question is, is, okay, if you have that conception of Jesus, can you be a disciple of Jesus with this understanding of who he is? And I think the question is no, you can't. And when you look at those who think that he might be Elijah, there's some understanding of facts and knowledge behind that assumption. It's not wildly off. 
These, these are people who know Scripture, um, have had this tradition passed down to them from, from family members um, who are religious in their lifestyle, and they see that the weather is changing, so to speak, and they discern that things are really about to pop off, and so they're, they're, they're expectantly assuming that this man must be Elijah, who's meant to usher in this new part of God's story. But as informed and as well-read as they might be, they're, they're not right either. So I think the modern equivalent uh, of this crowd of people who think that Jesus is Elijah would be someone with a knowledge of Scripture, even maybe a theological understanding of who Jesus is. They may have grown up in a Christian home. They may have gone to a Christian school. They may have attended their youth group. They might be able to answer some of the right questions, but not with the conviction of believing the right answers. And so Jesus... We can know Jesus based on rumors of what people say. We can know Jesus based on traditions that have been handed down to us. And I think that there's a third option where we can know Jesus like the disciples knew Jesus. And when, disciple, when, the, when Jesus asks the disciples um, who they say Jesus is, Peter responds, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. It doesn't happen often for Peter, but when he gets it right, he nails it out of the park. Right? Peter is absolutely 100% right here. But why? Why is his understanding of Jesus right and everyone else's is wrong? This is is a challenging thing to even ask, right? Why is Peter right and everybody else in the thousands in that crowd wrong? He's hearing the same things that all all the crowds are being taught, He's seeing the same miracles that are being performed. He's he's seeing the same men, uh, the same man as anyone else, um, and he goes about his day and his life seeing the same person everyone else is seeing. Why has Peter and the other disciples been able to figure out something that nobody else has at this point? It's because Peter and the others each personally discovered who Jesus was. They personally discovered who Jesus was. They didn't discover who Jesus was from rumors being told uh, by others around them or, or, or what the culture or the society would say about Jesus. They didn't discover Jesus in the scriptures that they had been very well acquainted by um, or the traditions that were handed down to them by other people. They discovered that Jesus was the Christ of God, the Messiah, by each of them individually speaking with Jesus, spending personal time with him, and putting the pieces together for themselves that God had been revealing to them. So the second lesson this morning that we're seeing in this scripture is that being a disciple of Jesus requires personally discovering who Jesus Christ is. The question Jesus asks his disciples can be one of the most helpful questions to ask in a discipleship relationship with someone today. We might hear when we ask somebody, who who do you say Jesus is? We might hear, well, my parents told me when I was growing up that, or, well, my professor thinks that Jesus is, or maybe, well, Robert said on Sunday that Jesus is, and don't get me wrong, these can be good answers. They they might even be the right answers, but if they are not personally discovered and held as personal convictions and beliefs, then we're not disciples. We're not. We are in the crowd seeing Jesus from afar. So have we discovered who Jesus is personally? In our heart of hearts, have we discovered who Jesus is? Not what a blog might say about Jesus, not what a great book might say about who Jesus is, or maybe that uncle or aunt who loves Jesus, what they say 
about Jesus, not even what our spouse says about Jesus, not what I'm saying about Jesus right now, but who do you, who do you say that Jesus is? And this is a turning point for the disciples, and it could be a turning point for some of us in the room this morning. If you're having a hard time answering that on a personal level, just want you to know that's okay. That's okay. That's why we're here this morning. Um, this is a great place for you to be discovering who Jesus is, and I think that this sermon might really help in that process of you discovering who Jesus is. So that's a good question to move on to. Who is Jesus? Who does Peter personally discover or learn that Jesus is? Peter says the Christ of God, the Christ of God. What does that mean? Well, the word Christ is going to be from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed, anointed. It's also the same as the Hebrew word Mashiach. I got that from Austin, so if that's incorrect, you can blame him. Mashiach, meaning Messiah. Um, So to be the Christ of God or the Messiah of God would mean to be the anointed one of God. That's the buzzword, anointed. Well, what does anointed mean? Well, this is a university, right? So we're like, we're going to actually dive in and do the learning this morning. If you know the answer, please keep your hands down. Being anointed means to literally have sacred oil be poured over your head, a little oil on your head. It was done in the Old Testament on people who God chose to accomplish special tasks, very specific people that God ordains to do specific tasks. Uh, Priests and kings were anointed, sometimes prophets were as well, and instead of getting a crown, um, a king over Israel would have been anointed with oil. There's a major difference between the kingdom of Israel and other kingdoms during this time. And this was very significant because the act of anointing someone was always something that God told someone to go do. The appointing of someone to be a king was always God himself ordaining the king to be a king. Um, That's what the oil would signify. It it wasn't a crown that was made by man, and a man took it and put it on someone's head, uh, but the oil was being used as a naturally occurring uh, God-made means to bestow power and responsibility on somebody else. And so as we roll this understanding back up, uh, which is an understanding that Peter and the disciples and all of of the people during that time period would have totally understood... um, Peter is in essence saying, you are the God-appointed king. You are God's chosen king, being given power and responsibility directly from God. That's what it means to be the Christ of God, saying you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Being named king by God um, is a big deal. It's a big deal. The idea of kingship is something that's kind of lost on us today, barring some fantasy books and TV shows and movies, but, but being a God-appointed king uh, was not like being named president, right? It's not like being the president of, 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 a, of a nation. Um, and as scary as the presidency could be, right, um, there are still checks and balances. For, for a king, there aren't any checks and balances. If, if you're king, you are essentially God. You speak the law. What, what you will, what you desire gets executed. Um, there is no one more powerful than you anywhere else in your kingdom. So for Peter to say that, that after having personally discovered uh, this fact himself, that, that God, that Jesus is God's appointed king, um, it has pretty significant implications. You don't just go around saying, you are God's chosen king. But Peter says that about Jesus. The third lesson this morning is that Jesus is the Messiah, 
Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed king of God. And it's this understanding of who Jesus is that is going to shape and drive the disciples' life as they follow him. There's this image that sticks out to me from college. I have no idea where I heard it or who said it, um, but it's this idea that the way that we treat someone is going to change based on the authority that they have over us. So if someone offends you on the street, right, they like knock into you or say, I don't like you and use mean words and you're really offended by that, uh, you might be tempted to go toe-to-toe with them, right? You might push them back. You might give them an earful. Um, you might be tempted to at least, right? And the reason is that they don't have any authority over you, right? You, you can kind of freely be tempted to, to fight back and, and, and retaliate because there's really no reason, well, there are plenty of reasons not to. Don't, I don't want to go there. But there's no reason on an authority level that, the, that, that this person is going to get you in trouble for how you respond to them, right? But if a police officer arrives onto the scene, you'd be very wise not to speak to her in the same way that you would speak to this person, correct? Or at least you should have the sense to. And if for some reason things get really out of hand and you're brought into a courtroom, right, you got to plead your case before a judge, you'd bet that you'd be scrounging up every ounce of manners that you have as you're speaking to that judge. Now, you, you imagine that you're taken before a king, right? A king who has the power to be a judge, a juror, and the executioner, and the, the picture changes even more. Then you take that onto a cosmic level, and you're standing before the king of the entire universe, right? So the amount of authority someone has over you is going to shape how you regard them and how you interact with them, or at least it absolutely should. The reason why I say this is because Jesus, as we read the Gospels, he's a teacher, right? He's a good teacher. He's a friend. Um, he's a philosopher. He's, he's a theologian. Um, he's a son, a son. But I challenge you this morning to view him above all of these other things as being the king and ruler of all of creation, as the Messiah. A disciple who is able to have this view of Jesus first and foremost as a king will have the correct posture for true discipleship. And this is how we ought to view him each day, each time we approach him in prayer, each time we sing songs of worship to him. He, he's not our buddy who happens to be a king. He, he is the mighty king who happens to love us like a brother and like a sister. And I think it's fair to ask, well, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? What does it mean? Let's look at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but Jesus' response isn't necessarily what you would expect. So what I would expect are buzzers and confetti and like, you know, trumpets going off. And I, I mean... I, to think that it would be such a big deal for the disciples to figure this out on their own without, without having been told it at all. Imagine what it would take to have to convince someone that you were the king of the universe without being able to say that you're the king of the universe, right? So when Peter says this to Jesus, I imagine Jesus being like, yes, yes, you got it, you're right. You finally figured it out. But he doesn't say that. Jesus responds first by saying, don't tell anyone else this. Don't tell anybody else this. They're, they're not ready to hear this. They, they're not ready to personally discover this yet. 
He also says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Some people might read this and see it actually as maybe a denial to the idea that Jesus is the anointed king or the Messiah. Jesus uses this phrase, the son of man, which seems like it would even be a demotion to the title of king. Why not son of God, right? Why, after all, isn't he the son of God? Then why not use that term? Why use this term, the son of man? And here's something that's really, really interesting. So the phrase son of God, son of God, uh, was actually fairly common in Jewish, Jewish culture at this time, and it, it really wouldn't be used as a claim to divinity. Um, everyone was seen as a son of God. So to say that you were a son of God, it really wouldn't have meant anything significant. But the phrase son of man, which Jesus loved to use to, to describe himself, was, was almost never used. The most significant use of it in Jewish culture was in reference to this concept that we see laid out in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel, this prophet, is is being given a vision of this this day of the Lord that we've been talking about, Uh, and we see it in verse 13 of chapter 7. It's going to be on the screen behind me. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you got this vision of someone with the appearance of a man coming down on the clouds, being given dominion and glory and a kingdom where everyone is worshiping and serving him, and the phrase son of man is used here. It's this densely packed term that points to this scripture right here. A man being appointed king and given power and authority from the ancient of days, God himself. (coughs) Excuse me. When Jesus calls himself the son of man to Peter, it's a direct affirmation to Peter calling him king. There's no mistaking it, and Peter, along with his other disciples, would not have missed this nuance. Their eyes probably popped out of their heads that Jesus is using this phrase, son of man, to describe himself. But even as the anointed king, the Messiah, his purpose was not what anyone would have expected. Look what he says, verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What? Suffer? Be rejected? Killed? On the, on the third day be raised? What is Jesus talking about? For us, this is a part of the story that we know, but imagine yourself in the shoes of the disciples hearing this for the first time. It really doesn't make any sense, especially if Jesus is affirming his identity as the Son of Man from Daniel 7 with this epic scene of him ruling and reigning. To then say that he has to suffer and be rejected and killed, how, how do these pieces fit together? It, it would have been really confusing for them. The word must that we see there, the Son of Man must suffer many things, clues us into something um, that we need to look at. 
Uh, it points to the fact that this horrible thing that's about to happen isn't a coincidence. It's not going to be a result of a bad decision, or this isn't even Jesus' prediction of what might happen. Um, it must be done, meaning it's a, fu- it's a fulfillment of something that has already been planned. We read in 1 Peter 1.20 that this is something that was planned before the foundation of the world for our salvation, something that has to be done. The disciples didn't like the idea of their king dying for obvious reasons. This wasn't exciting news for them. This wasn't a rah-rah moment for them. Um, nor does it really fit into their vision of what their ministry, Jesus' ministry, would look like. They couldn't see how suffering, rejection, and death could lead to this Daniel 7 moment. Not to mention that suffering, rejection, and death seemed like, seemed like weakness. That's not something a strong king would do. Was this really the king that they wanted to follow, to be disciples of? Peter would make his feelings known, as he usually does. In Matthew's account of this conversation, we see him actually taking Jesus aside and rebuking Jesus. They're having a lot more fun down there than we are, right? (laughs) So we see Peter taking Jesus aside, having the audacity to rebuke Jesus. He says, uh, it says in verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, this is Jesus, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Peter hears that Jesus has to die, has to suffer, be rejected, and die, it's not something that's exciting for him. It's not a victory for him. But regardless of what the disciples thought or what they said, Jesus' purpose and his focus was set, which brings us to really our last lesson out of this text. A disciple must understand that the Messiah must be rejected, suffer, and die. A disciple must understand that the Messiah must be rejected, suffer, and die. This is the truth and the reality that we remember and celebrate each Sunday morning as we take communion. So in a minute, you're going to have the opportunity to take communion. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup. This is the covenant, of the new blood, which is shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me of me. In order to get to that Daniel 7 reign, Jesus the Messiah would have to first save his kingdom. He would have to save and redeem his kingdom to have a kingdom to reign over. His rejection, his suffering, and his death, they they wouldn't be weakness. On the contrary, we see that Jesus' choice, his, his active choice to bear his cross and his willingness to face suffering, rejection, and death would be a demonstration of his strength and his passionate love for his people, for us. And his resurrection three days later would be a demonstration of his power as God and king of the universe. This morning's sermon was all about the Messiah. That's the title of the sermon, Messiah. While some texts can reveal a lot of very practical applications for how to live our lives, like last week's, right? We had like seven or eight points, right, of takeaway points that we ought to really consider um, in, 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 in how we live our lives. But there are some texts that are, where the application is very simple, and this is one of those texts. 
the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, who are we saying that Jesus is? Who are we saying that Jesus is? With our habits and our decisions, by the way that we spend our time, the things that we talk about, the things that we spend money on, the things that we prioritize, how do they, do they reflect who we say Jesus is? Is Jesus a teacher in our lives? Is he a philosopher? Is he a great theologian? Is he a great thinker? Is he a friend? Is he a brother? Is he the king that rules over the universe and us, that has died for us in order to have a relationship with him? So as you take communion this morning, reflect on this. If you've never seen Jesus as king, ponder it, think about it, consider it. Consider not only that Jesus is king of creation, but this king who is ruler and reigner, most powerful being ever, has actually died for you to bring you into his kingdom. Consider that. If you're calling yourself a disciple this morning, um, as you take communion, give thanks to God for his willingness to face rejection, suffering, and death for you. And answer Jesus' gentle question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So in a minute, we're going to take communion. And if you've never done it here, you're just gonna, um, there's going to be two lines that form down the middle. And you're going to grab your communion 